Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. This is the Leading Saints podcast, and I'm your host, Kurt Frankham. Now, I'm actually recording this, uh, this recording, what you're hearing right now, in July, the end of July of 2020. And most likely, this won't publish until October, maybe, of 2020. And so I'm speaking to you in the future. Tell me, it gets better, right? I mean, 2020, like, it, it improves, right? Like we get better, please assure me this. Anyways, you can't speak back because DeLoreans don't take people back in time. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, we welcome you. This is a great resource. I hope you find a lot of value in it. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, one big way we do that is through this podcast, and I'm glad you found it. There's a, a library of 400 plus episodes that you need to peruse through and find some gems in there that will change your life. And we also have a website at leadingsaints.org where you can find uh, thousands of articles around leadership uh, as it relates to uh, the church context. And uh, our newsletter, are you not on the newsletter? I still find people who've listened to Leading Saints for years and years and they say, you have a newsletter? Yeah, that's right. And it's not one of these fluffy, we'll just email you once a week and bother you. We put unique content in these uh, in this newsletter that goes out every week and uh, you should be a part of that. So go to leadingsaints.org slash subscribe, and that will get you on the newsletter as well. Now, this interview is with Mark Johnson, who is the author of Lead from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth. He's a fantastic Latter-day Saint, a protege of the well-known late uh, Clayton Christensen. So we talk about Clayton Christensen a little bit, but he's also married to somebody famous, somebody by the name of Jane Clayson Johnson. Uh, the well-known uh, former guest of the on the Leading Saints podcast, and uh, we talk about not only his, uh, not only Mark's conversion experience, which uh, happened through the help of Clay Christensen, but also being meeting a, a celebrity and dating a celebrity, and then all then marrying her, and uh, how that went. So fun conversation, but also we get into the weeds of of strategy, innovation, and and vision. Really fun discussion. These are the ones I geek over, and I hope you geek over it as well. So here is my interview with Mark Johnson, the author of Lead from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth. Today, I'm uh, talking with Mark Johnson through the powers of Zoom. How are you, Mark? I'm good, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I've been looking forward to this uh, discussion and recently reviewed your book and uh, your latest book. I know you've written a few, but maybe for people who aren't familiar with you and your background, uh, how would you introduce yourself? Well, um, again, great to be here, Mark Johnson. I uh, my background is let's see. I was uh, 
I grew up in South Florida. I always had a desire to try to fly off aircraft carriers. So I did what <laughs> what could kind of help you get that way and become an aerospace engineer, went to the Naval Academy. At the Naval Academy, my eyes didn't stay 2020. So the flying aspiration sort of went by the wayside because I didn't want to sit in the back seat of, of these uh, fighter aircraft. I wanted to actually fly the plane. So, uh, you know, I went the next best thing, you know, as an engineer, which I thought was, was with the Naval Nuclear Power Program. And I spent three years on a, on a ship after the Naval Academy, the USS Mississippi, and was in the first Gulf War. You know, we were, uh, we were a guided missile cruiser that supported the carriers and the carrier battle group. And I did that for three years, then went to Washington for my shore duty, found out sort of the Navy was making some major changes. So I got out of the Navy after about a total of eight years in the Navy, um, because I had some graduate school within there as well, and decided that the part that really inspired me, the technical and engineering part was interesting, you know, the nuclear power understanding and my engineering background. But what really I enjoyed was leadership and, um, Hmm. you know, leading folks that are in divisions on the ship and, you know, different opportunities to, to manage. And so I thought, well, as a, as a naval officer coming out, you know, how would I best transition to what I thought would be sort of leadership in the business world? And that's when I went to Harvard Business School in the mid nineties. And I met one of our church members who sadly passed away recently, Clay Christensen, took a course of his trying to keep this all relatively short. So we, uh, <laughs> You're good. we, we, uh, we spent time together. You know, I took one of his inaugural courses on managing innovation. It really inspired me, not just about the content, the subject of, of, of what Clay taught, but him as a human being. And so I stayed in touch with him after I left Harvard Business School and I had gone to a consulting firm called Booz Allen and Hamilton, but I stayed close with him. And long story short is when his book came out in the late 90s called The Innovator's Dilemma, I had suggested that maybe there was a way for us to do something together because it was an important message for, for companies and you know their challenges to stay viable and not get disrupted. And um, so we ended up doing some things together in the late 90s that led up to finally starting a company together in January of 2000 called Innosite. And that's really where I've been ever since and uh, with Clay the whole way and until his sad passing in uh, January of this year. Yeah. So, and he was uh, instrumental in your conversion to the church. Uh, how did that uh, story begin? Uh, that's right. Well, you know, it starts, some of these things start with seeds planted in, uh, in impressions and sort of kind of goes for all of us. Uh, you know, it started with his example and it started with the, an understanding of his character and his kindness when I was taking his course in the mid nineties at, at Harvard Business School. And it also led me to, to gravitate towards him because of all that, I think, you know, not just from a professional collaboration, but, but just as someone I looked up to. And, uh, and so I think I was, had the seeds planted of curiosity about his faith back in the, you know, the first time I met him, basically. And so we interacted for all those years of the 95 to 2000 until we started the company. It wasn't only, but probably a couple months into you know, kind of having the company together that he approached me and asked me if I wanted to uh, take the discussions, you know, meet the missionaries of which I was very open. You know, I didn't think I was going to necessarily change in my faith, but I was just very open to hear what made him tick. I or thought I would learn a lot more about what made him tick by by following uh, his uh, suggestion and, and 
and listening to the missionaries, which so happened to be missionaries that taught me in the home of Clay and Christine. So they were there too to be participants. And that was that was in June of 2000. So ultimately, all six months after we started the company, and you know the process of conversion and you know the process of faith started, and there were really wonderful experiences that led to you know at least in the, those days, maybe it still happens on the second discussion, asking if I wanted to be baptized, and me saying uh, yes. I actually said yes, uh, but, but in my mind, you know, it was interesting. It was a very spiritual experience that happened right then and there because I had this strong, you know, maybe it was the spirit, you know, kind of confirming a, a important principle or truth, but I just had this strong feeling that it would be very special to make a covenant to the Lord and to the Lord to make a promise to me. And I, you know, I didn't really have a full understanding of that the way I did now, but I had whatever the spirit was teaching me. But in that process, I thought, okay, that's great to do that commitment. And that's really special in the ordinance of baptism, but I didn't have any plans that I had to join an organized religion, you know, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I, th- I think I even said to the missionaries, I would be glad to be baptized, and that would be really powerful as a, a sign of of a covenant. But that I I didn't intend to be a me- I did not intend to be a member of the church. Which oh, I interesting. Think, which I think caused a, a lot of confusion in their brain at first. But <laughs> needless to say, we we worked through that. And I was, in fact, baptized probably two months after they had asked me. And, you know, it was an amazing experience. And it was also amazing because it wasn't but a few weeks after being baptized in September of 2000 that the Boston Temple was dedicated. And hmm. I was a token convert participant of that dedication, which... Um, was the full measure of my conversion to be a part of that dedication ceremony. Wow. That's interesting. So I, I assume uh, since then you've reconciled your membership of the <laughs> yes. church with your covenant making, right? <laughs> absolutely. That's yes, I'm a full, a full, say, say card carrying member. So absolutely. <laughs> That's great. I, I've never, yeah, I can see why the missionaries would be confused by that because growing up in the church, you just see it one of the same, right? Right. But uh, yeah, I, I'll uh, I'll make covenants, but I want to I don't want to be part of your club per se. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, that's interesting. Now, uh, you're actually the spouse of a former guest on the Leading Saints podcast, uh, Jane yeah. Clayson Johnson. So you are the reason why she has Johnson at the end of her name. Yes. Uh, and so I assume you were single at the time of joining the church. And then did that lead to uh, meeting Jane? And, and now you're you're Yeah, no, uh, I was single um, when we were taking the discussions. And it led to uh, actually a, a friend of mine at, at business school who was a member of the church. Uh, I wasn't obviously a member at the time when I was at business school, but I, but we were friends and I remembered him as someone who was very socially adept and seemed well-networked. And so as soon as I joined the church, not thereafter, I tapped into my friend, John Stone and, and said, you know, I mean, he was married, but I knew he had a lot of friends between him and his wife. You know, do you have any, anybody, you know, that's a single sister who would be interested to date someone who's a, 36-year-old new convert. And so it wasn't long after that that he sent me an email with an introduction to Jane Clayson, you know, with the tagline at the bottom that said, you owe me big. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, Jane was, uh, Jane at that time, this was late 2000, she was a co-anchor with Brian Gumble on the early show, CBS's early show. So I always like to joke, you know, we when we had our first date, you know, in early 2001, it was a blind date 
we called it a blind date, but it really wasn't blind date for me because I had <laughs> right. seen plenty of uh, video footage of, of her. So yeah, but it was uh, it was one of my friends at business school that introduced us to Jane, me to Jane, and then uh, we dated for some time and got married in 2003. That's great. I love that because it is. I mean, it's very rarely do people experience going on a date with someone with celebrity status, right? And yeah. So <laughs> I was sure intimidated. Oh, I, I was bet. hugely intimidated. So yeah, but that was. Maybe that was also a step of faith to to take that step, and uh, you know, for the Lord, actually, the Lord was definitely His hand was in the process of our dating, and that's part of a further of my testimony. And you know, it took some time, you know, just as we were both busy and um, you know, sort of working through at the right process and in the Lord's time. But definitely, with both of our faith and uh, both, of, I think of our obedience, which is the other thing I felt because Jane, you know, was amazing and her obedience to the gospel with all that she was as someone single and living in New York and in her stature. But the Spirit really testified about, you know, our both of our commitment to stay obedient that led to us being brought together and and being nurtured really in our relationship that led to us getting married. Yeah, that's fantastic. And now several kids later, you're still going strong, right? <laughs> we are. You know, we, um, I have, we we have older kids from my first marriage, so I have a oh, okay. I have a daughter Christina who's married with three children, and uh, they both went to BYU Idaho. And uh, by the way, Christina, that's be another story. Christina joined the church when she was about eighteen, but had a pretty powerful conversion story of her own. Oh, cool! And my other daughter Catherine joined the church after she started BYU Idaho. She went as a non-member, and that's another story that then led to her. Wow. Her conversion, her baptism, of which, by the way, her missionary that was there who kind of guided her through the process is the one that she ultimately married. Oh, wow. Uh, That's from great. BYU, Idaho. So, and I have an older son who is in between those two girls. And then Jane and I have a 15 year old, soon to be 16. Her name oh, is wow. Ella. And then William, who is uh, 14, soon to be 15. Well, that's great. That's awesome. Well, um, and and since then, you know, obviously with your uh, interaction with uh, Clay Christensen and and his mentorship, and, and you've developed a great career in leadership consulting. Is that how you would uh, term your your career? Well, yes. Although I would say, you know, leadership is a huge component of it. I mean, we officially are called a strategy and innovation consulting firm. Okay. But because you know, when we talk about this in the book, Lead from the Future, you know, strategy is more about kind of how you win the game, but visions about what is the game you should play in the first place. So, and that's where leadership comes in. You know, a leader needs a vision, you know, to, I think, to really sort of guide an organization. And so that's really kind of the evolution of Insight. You know, we started thinking about innovation, but then we went into strategy because you needed to kind of think about a long-term plan. But then we moved also into thinking about vision and leadership because you needed to also talk about how do you inspire the organization? Or people? How do you give them hope? How do you give them purpose? Those things can be, all be encapsulated in you know a powerful vision. More than an organization that just says, "Hey, we're going to have a HR exercise and create a one sentence or two sentence business vision statement." That's that's not what this is about, right? This is really yeah. about building an inspiring story to guide people. So yes, I, I would say we're leadership. We officially call ourselves a strategy and innovation consulting yeah. firm. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, leadership is such a broad term where it's involved in really every industry, every component of an organization. And so the book, the, your recent book called Lead from the Future, How to 
turn visionary thinking into breakthrough growth. I'm really excited to talk about some of these concepts you discuss in the book in the context of being a leader in the church because and it really goes back to this concept of innovation that uh, you know Clay Christensen really was a pioneer in, in this concept I mean as far as the modern day thought of it but when I take innovation over to the context of church leadership I it sort of doesn't fit right, right? Like it feels <laughs> right. awkward right because because right. uh, you know in the secular business world it's sort of an exciting subject to talk yeah, about yeah. you know you give the anecdote of right. Netflix versus blockbuster and you think oh wow that's so interesting how that came but yeah but in the church, we sort of sit around and wait for any quote unquote innovation to be accompanied with revelation that's coming down from from the corner of the twelve. So, yeah. But at the same time, I feel like local leaders do need to consider innovation and make room for it and and lead with it. So, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts, just generally speaking, in the context of the church as far as innovation is concerned? Oh yeah, no, it's a great question because I, I think the blank reaction, right? It could mean the danger of critical doctrine and principles being somehow modified or, you know, just sort of going rogue, whatever you want to call it, leading right, to apostasy. Yeah. You know, I think I think the way we've thought about it, and, you know, and there, there's been times I've even that there's been, you know, some help with the church, you know, in different places from the perspective of our expertise on on innovation and strategy. You know, I, I think the, the doctrine is the doctrine, you know, that is the immutable, right? But but how that doctrine reaches the individual or reaches even the non-member, you know, the method by which it's communicated, you know, how it's taught, you know, how it's incorporated within the context of our day, you know, there's a lot more noise today than ever. <laughs> there's a lot of rising social issues that can create stumbling blocks, I think, for, you know, for individuals, you know, and some of those may be rightly so you know, that need to get addressed. So all these kinds of things, you know, go in the mix. And the question is, how do you innovate along the lines of how you communicate? Or how do you innovate along the lines of the way things get taught? You know, how do you innovate in terms of potential practices in general? You know, maybe even to some degree policy, as long as, you know, you keep separate doctrine and principles, which need to stay you know, immutable. They need to be. They need to be preserved. But but everybody would agree. All of that still needs to reach the individual and touch them and have them feel it, and then lead to conversion. And and where that process, you know, needs to be adjusted in an appropriate way is, I think, where innovation can come in. And that innovation can be, as you said, it can be at the local level to be able to, you know, make a more effective young men's program. Say. You know, maybe there's unique circumstance, you know, in a in an area of the United States where a lot of young men are coming from households that they don't have a dad or they just don't have a very strong family at home, you know, or socioeconomic other conditions. And, you know, things have to be modified and adjusted to properly engage them and to support them in ways that maybe go outside of just supporting them spiritually because without the temporal support maybe they won't get to the spiritual self-reliance until they can get the temporal piece addressed in all those things you know whether it's you know supporting the temporal affairs or dealing with just sort of the unique circumstance of an individual in their household and community give lots of room for innovation so I, I think it's about defining what do we mean by innovation and defining it specifically for what aspects of 
the church and of being a member of where it is applicable. Yeah. No, I love that. And I really just being recognizing that we need to, we're not trying to influence or change doctrine through our innovation. Right. Uh, you know, we'll recognize the doctrine for what it is and the source from where it comes, but then still find those areas of opportunity of innovation. And, and so what would you say if there an elders quorum president, or at least society president, a bishop came to you and said, okay, Mark, I want to be more innovative in my organization. How do I find opportunities of innovation? Yeah, well, I think one of the ways that we as in our work over the last 20 years is is to keep in mind that it it starts with it starts with the consumer or the customer. It starts with the person, you know, it starts with the individual. And so we call it what job are they trying to get done? Oh, what yeah. need are they trying to fulfill? Now we say job just because we don't want it to be I need this product or I need this item. We want it to be what are you trying to get done in your life? You know, what what are you trying to accomplish? What are your needs and your wants, right? Which, by the way, is important because so often in the church, you know, we get a lot of requirements imparted upon us, not just, you know, the ordinances and the covenants that we need to make, but, you know, there are requirements on our calling and administrative requirements if you're a church local leader or, or general authority, you know, so there are a lot of requirements, but what are the individual's needs and wants? And, yeah. you know, again, outside of the you know, that they've got certain needs and wants that if not addressed might affect their ability to receive the doctrine and to learn from it and to grow in it. So you can start there and just say, what are the needs and wants of my elders quorum? You know, what are they, what are they struggling with? And I don't mean just struggling with doctrine. I mean, like just struggling in life, you know, like what's holding them back? What are those barriers? So not only what are their needs and wants, but what are their barriers and what, you know, what are the ways that you can overcome those barriers? You begin to start asking those kinds of questions, and you might start to think about how you might change the way you know meetings are held, or change the way ministering assignments are done, or you know change the way that you ask younger single you know whatever younger families or younger individuals in your elders quorum if you're a single adult group you know how do you innovate in ways that individuals can provide service that that yeah. service can touch them and help them to love, you know, others more deeply. Yeah. So. And I, and my mind goes to, sometimes we make the mistake. And I think in the secular world with businesses, you, you uh, consult with, you see this a lot too, where they, they assume what that job is that they need done. So it's easy for an elders quorum president bishop to say, well, what you need is to make covenants right. and what right. you need is to do A, B, and C. And so if I can just convince you that you need this, but in reality, and it goes circle back to your own experience where you said, well, you've convinced me why I need the job of making covenants with a God, but I don't really need a membership in a church. Like I don't need like a place to go every Sunday, you know, those types of things. But obviously the more you look into covenant making, you see the need for it. But what do you say? Like, how do we avoid that trap of, of assuming the job or the need that those that we lead need? Well, I think, you know, and this kind of goes back to the attributes of, well, that we know so well, and just going back to them, you know, that, that start with the savior, but, but that we, put in the attributes of the of the scriptures and the and the doctrine and everything is humility and listening seeking to understand first knowing that you know to meet somebody where they are is probably best not to say this is what you need but to understand you know how are you doing and what are you trying to get done and you know what issues are you facing and you know what stumbling blocks are you dealing with you know Isaiah talks about a lot about in the book of Isaiah talks a lot about removing stumbling blocks mm. and i think stumbling blocks are 
you know, clearing the path, right? So we got to clear the path, the covenant path, but we got to remove the stumbling blocks. And there are a number of verses in Isaiah that talk about that, you know, thinking about it as a path, but making sure that that path is clear. I think leaders, church leaders, you know, local leaders, others, family leaders, everything should work as much to make sure that we're removing stumbling blocks as as much as saying you're required to do this. And that takes listening to understand what really are the, the stumbling blocks, because I think a lot of those are very personal. And, you know, without questioning and understanding them and taking the time and the space, you might, you know, you could all find ourselves in judgment and say, well, I wouldn't have expected that to be a stumbling block. That's not a stumbling block for me. Well, you know, it's a stumbling block for them. And and the only way to understand that and to see how they process it is to listen and to learn. So I, I think that's would be my recommendation is to is for us to try to understand, you know, what somebody's really dealing with, having that empathy that comes through the humility and the listening, so that you can understand them a lot better. And then if it does seem like it's if you will, misguided, then that's an opportunity to gently mentor and try to tie it to gospel principles and opportunities to get past those things that might be holding them back to things that are more engaging, you know, that come through service and, you know, opportunities that fulfill them that lead to opportunities to be more converting, converting oriented by people feeling purpose and feeling needed and feeling included, which then gives opportunities for them to have the ultimate and converting power, which is to feel the spirit. But I think it's almost, we often think of it almost like a, a ladder up. You know, you got things pulling you down on the ladder. Those are those stumbling blocks. But then you have those things that you can walk up, you know, starting with engaging type of things, you know, knowing the church is doing good things, you know, be, having somebody who's really kind to you, being very family oriented, all of those things you can say, oh, those are really good. But then it needs to move to the individual to say, where are the opportunities for me to feel included, to feel needed, to feel purpose, to feel like I'm helping others that then get you to a place that I think you're in a really great place. You know, the, the soil has been tilled, the seeds have been planted for you to get that, that opportunity for the spirit to touch you and to feel it and to begin your, you know, your own realization that, that God lives and loves you and that he's he's real in your life because you just don't intellectually understand it you spiritually feel it and it it's deep within you yeah no that's powerful and and it, i mean it sounds like really the first step is creating a platform or a scenario where you can really hear and listen to your core members to the members of your relief society whatever it is to understand the needs in their life so that you yeah. can bring to them innovation that's going to fulfill that need or, or move them closer to a greater need. And one key point, Kurt, you know, just exactly is, um, and this kind of goes why we say, you know, oftentimes we say, what are you trying to get done in your life as opposed to what do you need? It is we always, we have to be careful, especially, you know, if you're an elder scorn president or other church leader to not say, you know, do you need a better, you know, a better ministering assignment or, you know, do you need a better companion or do you need hmm. a, you know, something within the paradigm of the church of what do you need? Do you need a better way to do your scripture study? No, you got to actually start more fundamental than that. You have to just say, put it outside of what the church can offer for a moment or or what you as an elders quorum and say, you know, how are things going? What, how, what are you trying to get done, you know, that you're not getting done? You know, what are your dreams in life? You know, what, 
how do you see things? You know, try to without, you know, obviously you wouldn't want to make it too personal and get somebody uncomfortable, but if you're really trying to help your quorum or your auxiliary or whatever, being able to have a more fundamental, empathetic conversation about, you know, things in their life that the spirit can guide you to, to things that you can say. And then maybe to your point, it ways that you might have to do things differently about how you, you manage your quorum or your auxiliary or what have you to support some of these things you're realizing about the personal lives of your of the participants in your council yeah. or your and, quorum. And it sounds like this exercise of listening and discussing really it needs to happen both on a general level with the group of maybe the whole quorum together, but yeah. also one-to-one uh, yeah. individually. And I like how you're, you say it, like you really have to force yourself out of the context of some of these structures we have in the church to discover the need, because it's not about, well, they just need a better way to, to read the scriptures or to attend church or whatever, but maybe an individual is trying to start up a company and he, right. and he's really stressing about that happening. And then through that understanding that need, you're like, Hey, you should talk to, you know, brother so-and-so on the ward. He has a connection to that industry that fulfills a need, which then gives them greater purpose and meaning to come to church and which leads to covenants down the road, right? There's not, it's hard to connect the dots from that interaction to a covenant or exaltation or things, but it's just these little needs that we have to go through the exercise of discovering so that we can serve those that we lead through innovative methods, right? Exactly. And that puts you, you know, just like we tell a company, it it puts you in what we would call such an outside in kind of way. So don't push inside out. Don't say, like you said, we have all these good things that can help you and your family. Here they are. Let me give them one by one to you. This is it. Instead, hold back on all that church product and say, outside in, let me really seek to understand you and yeah. to care for you and to love you just like the Savior would do, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's powerful. And, and again, it emphasizes the need of some of these one-to-one ministering interviews that sometimes... It, you get in these and it's like, hey, how are your families? Oh, good. All right. I guess we're done here. But no, to really right. see them as opportunity to discover some needs in that individual so that you can help them as their yeah. leader. Right. And lastly on this, and I know we keep going on it, and this no, is the harder part, but it is for better or for worse, it's the reality of our times, you know, especially in the rising generation. You know, there are a lot of people trying to investigate the church and that are in the church, like I said, in the in the rising generation and the youth who have a lot of questions. They're a questioning generation. And I think we have to be prepared to listen and give space to things that maybe we'd say, hey, I wouldn't have that as a stumbling block. But if you really want to understand them and you know how they're going to process everything, I think giving people a safe space that they can be heard about things of their, maybe they are questioning the church or questioning some aspect of church policy or, or what have you. And you know, it goes kind of back to empathy. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but just being able to listen to them, to put it into context of that, I think is important. And I think sometimes we might be afraid to kind of go down that path. And certainly the person that has those questions might be afraid. They might not feel they're in a safe space to have them. But yet, if they're not addressed, then they become, like I said, they remain as stumbling blocks. Yeah. So. Yeah. So sort of circling back to the general conversation of innovation, sometimes, I mean, innovation sort of feels there's some energy innovation. It's sort of cool. Like, and sometimes we can hear of other organizations and we get this all the time on leading saints. Well, somebody will share sort of a, a new approach, a fresh approach to sacrament meeting, to doing their ministering assignments, whatever it is. And we hear that like, whoa, that is cool. I didn't think of that. Let's do that. Let's take that 
and apply that into our ward. But it sounds like with innovation, you really, the need of those that you're serving, whether it's customers, clients, or members of your or of your organization, you have to identify the need and then follow up with innovation and not just do innovation for innovation's sake. Absolutely. And, you know, and I also think along with uh, the needs and wants of the individual and what you're trying to overcome as barriers, you also have to deal with constraints, right? I remember there's the famous story of, I think, some place in Africa that decided to you know, have women administer the sacrament or, or something like that, uh-huh, you uh-huh. know, and they would say, wait a second, wait a second. No, that's not actually, you know, and the same goes for their certain church policy that maybe you can't immediately connect it specifically to a doctrine, but yet it's a policy that is, that has been prescribed and is not subject to be innovated on. Yeah, <laughs> or, right, yeah. or if it is going to be innovated on, it's going to be only at the discretion or the the deliberation of the 12, nobody right. else. So that's, I think, the other part of this is, yes, definitely don't innovate for innovate sake, but also know within the constraints by which are areas you can innovate and which areas you can't. I mean, that's very important too, because I, I think there are occasions when sometimes there's, uh, there's interpretation about some policy or something that's just... I, so I think it's very important to understand what we like to say, what's What's desirable because to innovate because you've you've learned a lot. Boy, there's a need here, and there are no constraints. What's discussable, mm, you know, between how much the need and how much of this is pushing the line. You know, we might need to get approval for. And what's unthinkable? Which forget about it. It's just never. You're never going to innovate in that area. But yeah. kind of know the circumstance that you're in. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up as far as constraints because in a discussion, maybe a ward council is having, they may be you know putting together a great vision you know, being innovative, but then they also need to bring and say, okay, what are the res- the constraints we have? What's going to hold us back from doing this? And right. a lot of times it is some of those policy constraints, right? But a lot of the times, at least what I've seen, those policy constraints are, aren't actually policy constraints. I think right. of my friend, Rob Farrell, who was a stake president of a young single adult stake. And from the time back he could remember, they were always, the stake relief society president was always made up of older women out, you know, maybe the wives of Bishopric members within that stake. And he thought, well, why can't we use young single adults to field those positions? And he just made one phone call to his area 70 and said, can I do this? And he said, I don't know why yet. Didn't think about that sooner. Right. Right. So sometimes just asking these questions and working through the constraints, you can find more innovation that you thought was available to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. So uh, the way I see our conversation, we're, we're talking about really three things like innovation, vision, and strategy. And I'm a big, if people who've listened to Leading Saints for a long time know that I always hammer on the concept of vision because in my experience, and I think this is a, a general experience in the church that we've been a part of many wards or quorums, and it just feels like there's not much vision there. We're just sort of, we're showing up. We know the importance of the sacrament. So we do that. And then we go to our core meetings or whatever, and away we go. and that's we'll rinse and repeat for next week, right? But there's not like this dynamic vision that really infuses energy and purpose into an organization. But also with, I'm just curious, like, what do we need to consider when it comes to strategy? Because I, I think of like, and I've worked with, uh, I've talked with a lot of like elders quorum presidents who said, yeah, we, we established a vision in our quorum and it was to bring people into Christ. Like, okay, well, but there's no strategy there. Like, what does that actually look like? 
So how, how do we need to understand this concept of the importance of strategy that goes along with vision? vision? Yeah. Well, you know, one thing to put also that I think is uh, interesting context, you know, that we, we work a lot with, you know, say companies that are dealing with the need to rethink their future or to deal with a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, in, in the context of courses with COVID-19, this crisis has caused a lot of organizations in terms of including the church organization, you know, to think about how things are going to be done differently with missionaries and temples. And so there's lots of uncertainty. There's lots of change. There's lots of planning on how to do things differently, you know, and how do we get on the way things are going to be post the crisis? Like, are we going to be a lot more virtual and remote than we used to be? You know, and again, that has a lot of application to the church. I mean, our missionaries going to have more remote time than just live time, you know, because maybe there's some effectiveness about how they're able to, to run things, you know, within the, you know, within the Zoom call, right? So I think first, you know, I would think about, let's just put it in the context of, of vision, vision in the context of like right now, I think people and organizations need hope and they need, again, purpose and they need, you know, to be inspired, you know, they need a North Star. I mean, of course we have the gospel, that's our ultimate North Star. But we also need a North Star about where is the, you know, where's the church heading? Where is the local area heading? Where's the quorum heading that has a set of aspirations and goals in terms of what it wants to do to help people and to, you know, to advance conversion and, and livelihood and all those kinds of things. And so vision is about really creating that hope, that inspiration, that purpose it's more than just a platitude. It's not just, you know, we're going to increase baptisms by 50%. It has to be a narrative. It has to be something you can hold on to and say, wow, I'm really inspired. I'm really excited about this. And especially in these times, it's about kind of where you want to go. We talk about it in a business sense. What is the game you want to play as opposed to winning the game? What is the game? You know, what is the, what's the context of the story that you know, you're kind of telling, you know, that you want your quorum or individuals to do. Strategy, on the other hand, is really about how to get there. You know, strategy is about, you know, how are you going to succeed? What is the path you're going to take to achieve that ultimate destination? What are the choices you're going to make? Because we live in a world of scarce resources. You have to make choices. You typically don't have unlimited resources to get to your destination. So you have to be careful about you know, what are those important choices? What are the things you're not going to do? What are the things you are going to do? And that's all part of the strategy piece of how to get there. And, you know, so when we think about it in a company context, we want you to get out and set that vision, but then we want you to figure out how to get there and how do you navigate choppy waters and difficult times. And we have a bunch of techniques in the business world, we'll call them scenario planning and managing trends and, you know, thinking about options and implications of different paths, but both are important. What's the path you're going to take, but without an ultimate destination defined that is more than just, you know, a simple sentence, you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle together. So that's how I would think about vision and strategy. You know, one is the ends or the inspiration, the destination, and the other is the means. It's how to get there. It's the choices you make along the way to be able to to deal with that north star because that north star is what's driving you and propelling you forward. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that because once you talk in the with vision and strategy together, it it naturally orients you towards the future forward, right? Where it's so easy in organizations, especially in the church, to just sort of 
wait around for the next fire that you have to put out. Right. And you're just sort of dealing with problem to problem. And especially as a, you know, as a Bishop, it's like, man, my schedule's full. I've got all these things I got to organize and you want me to look forward. Like what? I don't, I don't don't have time for that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. But yet, you know, we call it the tyranny of the urgent, right? We can be so busy, you know, running on the treadmill or the hamster wheel, right? Or the, it's called the tyranny of the urgent, but you can just sense it, right? We could be dealing with a lot of what seem like urgent present day things, but are we really addressing those things that are really vital? Are we really thinking about forward looking to those things in the future? They may not be urgent and we might not have to address it today or tomorrow or next week or next month, but they're we're slowly creeping towards something that needs to be ideally addressed now, as opposed to waiting till a later time. Right. Yeah. And it, I think that's just a great exercise for a ward council to, to ponder over is do our ward council meetings feel, are we more focused on the urgent or are we more focused on the strategy? Right. And maybe there's a better word. Cause I don't, I don't know strategy meetings can sometimes be difficult, <laughs> right. right. To sit through and, and it's a, it's a slog at times, right? And so, but nonetheless, it's so important to stay focused there because it orients you forward rather than just putting out fires. Right? Well, and a simple way to put it, you know, so we don't get, you know, hung up on maybe, you know, they'll feel too business-like. Right. Are we focused? And we do need to focus on the origin and maybe that's 80% of our time. But do we spend 10 to mm. 20% of our time being forward-looking, planning for the future, right? I mean, we could just as simple as call it that. Do we spend 10 to 20% of our time thinking ahead, thinking about the future, planning for it? And, you know, we we don't necessarily have to get into the nitty-gritty of, you know, strategy-making, just simply saying we're planning for that future. We have a view of what that future might look like, you know, how things might change in our community and change in the nature of who's coming in and coming out of our church in the sense of who's moving in and who's moving out, right? Right, yeah. You know, are, is our ward growing dramatically or is it actually decreasing? Is there a trend towards that that we need to be, we need to be planning for, you know? So all of those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, and I guess it's just that it goes back to the principle of being reactive and proactive. You know, sometimes you yeah. do, you know, you may need to spend 80% of your time being reactive, but yeah. just to be disciplined to say, we're, we're going to be take 20% of this meeting to be proactive and looking for yeah. the future and strategy. Or, you know, another way, you know, because sometimes we say it's, it's hard to do both at the same time. So, you know, just carve out one ward council meeting a quarter, you know, once every mm. three months to just spend, you know, a good hour or two hours, you know, if you can carve out the time just to talk about planning and talk about the future. And, you know, are we, have we spent enough time in the future anticipating what are going to be the needs of our ward and our members, you know, coming down in the next couple of years? Yeah. And I, I appreciate you highlighting that, that it doesn't have to be this like overhaul of how you yeah. do things, right? Just this, yeah. these little, you know, touch points where you yeah. can focus on the, the strategy, right? I want to underscore sort of you talk about sort of the narrative and context as it applies to vision, because this is to me really, I feel like when I talk about vision where people miss is that it's good to have a vision, but then it'll launch you to, in order to transition to that discussion of strategy, a good way to do that is to say, what is the narrative here? You know, we're in, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina, and, and in this ward, what's the narrative? We're bringing people to Christ, if that's our vision. Like, what does that look like in this narrative, in this context, as opposed to maybe you're in Magna, Utah, and that's going to be completely different. So you can have the same vision, but very drastic or drastically different strategies, right? Yes. 
so again, you could have the same vision about the particulars of bringing people to Christ and what that looks like, and um, you know, just to think about overall growth in the in the ward, I and mean, just the nature of how missionary work is envisioned, you know, whatever it is. But how you get there, to your point, the context and the circumstance of the community and, you know, the way people were raised culturally, you know, in that section and, you know, just the nature of how strong are the families, you know, how many single parents, you know, all those things could change the way you're going to get there. How many people are really active, you know, that you could depend on how much priesthood leadership do you have, you know, all those kinds of things could really change plans for how you're going to get there. You know, you could be completely self-sufficient within the ward. Other times you might have to be asking for resources outside of the ward in some way. Yeah. And just to give sort of a, an example of that is I remember my time serving as a bishop, I was in an inner city area and I felt the prodding and the inspiration pushing me towards just finding and identifying who's on our roles because it's such a transient area, right? And so there's all these families we didn't know but naturally, in my ward council, my elders, quorum president, relief society president, they were defaulting to home teaching and visiting teaching, which was at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And which was natural because that's sort of what you've defined those callings to do and, and be. And I remember being very clear with them and saying, I couldn't care less about home teaching and visiting teaching. We need to focus on who are these people? Are they here still? And then once we get that settled, maybe we can we can pivot towards that other focus. And so really just bringing that context and narrative into the discussion of vision is really where it comes alive. I feel absolutely. like. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of topics here, Mark. This is really good. Uh, any other concept or point of view is, is it in the context of uh, being a, a church leader that you feel like some of your book or principles that you've studied would really hit on before you wrap up? You know, I, we may, it may have been obvious based on the conversation, but I still think it's worth mentioning you know, putting aside all of these different terms of vision and strategy and so forth, you know, my my recommendation, you know, when it comes from, again, the book Lead from the Future is, is to recognize that the future is not as unpredictable or daunting or, you know, a fool's errand as I think many people think. You know, if you look out, whatever the right time horizon is, two years out, four years out, five, whatever, you know, we we talk about organizations like in corporations, they never look past five years. We say, look out five to 10 years because that Mm -hmm. long-term view. So, you know, what I guess I would just say is how do you start beginning to have conversations about the future? Like literally just going in that exercise and saying, what do things look like? What do we think things could be like in the environment here? You know, the the nature of our board membership, the nature of our community, the nature of just the society writ large, whatever, you know, how do things look out in the future? And you'll be amazed at just having a conversation of what we would call the foresight, which is spending time in the future foresight to talk about different things that can lead to a one or two insights. And we like to say, once you have that insight, you never go back. So, Hmm. You know, I, I think it's just a question of how to, as you said earlier, how do you carve out time, whether it's in a bishopric leadership or at a ward council, you know, this applies to at the stake level or the church level for that matter of, you know, what does that future horizon look like and how can we start to have a somewhat creative conversation? Because you won't get certainty about the future. Nobody has a crystal ball and you could say it's even more unpredictable than ever 
But this is kind of, again, tied to the gospel. You can get clarity about the nature of how things can unfold. And that comes to the whole idea of an eye of faith, right? We don't have certainty about things, but but with faith comes hope. And we we have the eyes of a vision, you know, of what that looks like that gives us hope. That's kind of the nature of, of faith, right? Taking a step forward with light. The darkness, a little bit of light in front of us, maybe darkness around us as a new convert, but that light is also kind of a, a vision. It's kind of a, a narrative we're telling ourselves in our head that there's something good here that's leading us along. So we don't have certainty about what our membership's going to be as a new convert, but we do have some clarity that there's a lot of good here and there's a sort of a feeling of comfort and there's a set of things that work through in our mind in our feelings that sort of form the whole thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, it, and that makes it worth just taking the next step forward. Right. And, yeah. and knowing that with faith that it's, you're headed towards something good. And it takes my mind to, you know, just being forward thinking, you know, right now we're recording this at the end of July of, of 2020 in the midst of, you know, the pandemic and COVID and church is so, sort of getting back on track with, in some areas, but some of these disruptive things in, in life. And sometimes in, in the secular world, you know, a, a competitor may disrupt the industry and then you don't know where to go. And that really messes up your strategy. But sometimes like this, a pandemic can really disrupt an organization and leadership. And I kind of feel like leaders are a little more guarded in looking forward. You know, they think, well, we can't even plan our, let's not even talk about the Christmas party. We, right. I know we usually talk about it at this, this right. point, but who knows what it's going to look at. And so what would you say to encourage leaders to still continue to look forward and even long term when there's so much disruption like this uh, pandemic? Well, it's a little bit what you said earlier, Kurt, you know, a le- what defines a good leader, right? A, a good leader leads and a good leader inspires. A good leader gives hope and, and purpose for the organization, for their group of people. How do you do that? Well, you know, the the big way to do that is you create a vision for your organization. You create a vision for your people. And I would say in the middle of a crisis, yes, you've got all these things that, you, like you said, you can't even look past the next couple of days. But on the other side of it, people are hurting. People are wondering where things are going to shake out. And so, you know, we've got to be able to, you know, kind of like holding on to the iron rod. We've got to give them the path. We've got to give yeah. them that light. And so actually vision almost becomes more important than ever. And it doesn't mean you have to spend all your time developing the vision, right? I mean, you kind of develop the vision and then you work that back to, well, what does that mean? We're going to have our North Star. We're not going to get buffeted all over the place. We know where we're heading. First and foremost, with the gospel, we know where we're heading, but we know where we're heading, you know, kind of in this temporal way through the vision we set that's in keeping with the gospel. But then we need to, then we need to get to, well, how are we going to make it to there, especially with all this crisis going on? So it gives you an opportunity to, again, make sure that you're not doing all these urgent things at the expense of maybe there's some vital things you're not thinking about that are going to creep up 12 to 18 months from now that you actually should be planning now about to anticipate, you know, them coming to fruition. You know, there's the great sports analogy or quote from, you know, that Wayne Gretzky, the Canadian hockey player, he didn't skate to where the puck was, he skated to where the puck was going, you know? And I think there has to be some of that, even in the middle of a crisis, you have to say, we know where we're going. I mean, we may not perfectly know where we're going, but we roughly know where we're going. And whether there's a pandemic or not, it doesn't change where we're, we're heading. And 
So we have to do some of that planning and we have to have that North Star in place because otherwise we're, we're just, like you said, we're completely reacting. And in all that reaction, you know, I think can kind of come some kind of dangers of giving up or feeling like you're never going to make it or, you know, just not getting as hopeful. So you yeah. need that hopeful North Star. Yeah. And, and really what I've learned from you today is that when something like this happens, uh, you know, a crisis or disruption like this, it's easy to think, well, we have to rethink our vision, but it's just the, the narrative or context that have changed. And that doesn't right. mean you have to change your, your vision, but you right. maybe you need to consider changing your strategy, right? Exactly. And, How you're going to get there might have to change. Yeah. yeah that's really yeah. helpful. Well, Mark, anything else we haven't covered or No, this has been or? great. I get Good. really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no, it's been fun. And so if people do want to learn more about your book and I haven't been a good host of mentioning the oh, title no, enough, but uh, <laughs> lead from the future, how to turn visionary thinking into breakthrough growth. Where, If people want to learn more about the book or you, where would you send them? Well, one is, you know, we have some background on the book at futurebackleadership.com, all one word, or I think the book's available on Amazon, uh, amazon.com. And, you know, you could email me also directly at mjohnson at innocite.com. Awesome. Well, this has uh, been fantastic. And and the last question I have for you, Mark, is as you consider your time sort of being a, having a, a lifelong career as a student of leadership and being a leader, how has being a leader in, in that field made you a better disciple or follower of Jesus Christ? I think the biggest way is it's giving me the ability to think what really, it allows me to think in a more with perspective, right? To not let too much of what's happening now get me down that there's a there's a longer term horizon about that just like you know we say that this is a fairly short part of our eternal journey so being able to think in that longer term time dimension just helps i think me personally you know and it's not something that i i still have to practice it but but you know make this separation about what's really urgent versus what's really vital and you know not over indexing too much on today because you know, we have to be kind of looking onward and upward, right? Which is really what the gospel is all about. That concludes my interview with Mark Johnson. A big shout out to him and so grateful for him bringing his uh, his knowledge and perspective uh, to this podcast and talking about these principles in the context of being a, a church leader. And uh, again, thank you to Jane Clayson Johnson as well for the interview she did uh, about a year ago or so. If you haven't listened to that one, it'd be fun to uh, also look that one up. Maybe we'll link to it in the show notes here. And uh, it'd be phenomenal uh, stuff that uh, Jane is working on as well. As you can see, this is a power couple, right? And I know they'll do great things both in and out of the church in Massachusetts. Would you do me a favor and uh, take uh, this link or maybe the link to a, another interview on the Leading Saints podcast? Just drop it in an email or a text and send it to somebody. If there's any way that this podcast gets uh, promoted, it's through word of mouth, through sharing and texting and emailing. And so if you've been prompted to share this with somebody, I hope you will. And that, that would be awesome. We would really appreciate it. And, and that's a great way for us to grow and and continue our mission forward of helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought 
forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.